A couple of years ago, Brian sent out a request to this group, the European Speechwriters Network, asking members to send in their definition of what a speechwriter does. To explain his request, he said, Many people are shocked that speechwriters exist. At first, they think it's a dubious trade. Why can't top people write their own speeches? It can be a problem explaining what we do and how we do it. I think we can all see where Brian was coming from. I know that oftentimes when I've told people I'm a speechwriter, they look at me in complete confusion. They think for a minute, and then they say, oh, you write movies. Uh, well, sadly for me, I'm not a Hollywood scriptwriter, but I do feel extremely lucky to be a speechwriter. And in my case, luck is really the appropriate word. I got into speechwriting by accident, perhaps like many of us. My early career was in journalism and communications. And then 10 years ago, while I was working in the European Commission, my role included uh, organising events for the president, José Manuel Barroso. I got to know some members of his team, and so when they were looking for a new speechwriter, they asked me if I would like to apply. So I did. When I found out I'd got the job, I was really shocked, and I was pretty scared as well. My second child was only nine months old, and I knew that the job was going to be full on. And it really was full on. Barroso was giving two or three speeches a week on every possible different policy area. But more of that later. Since then, as I mentioned, I've worked for the First Lady of Qatar, the billionaire founder of an education company in Dubai, and now I'm based in Cambridge where I work part-time at the university and part-time on my own consultancy. But let's go back to Brian's challenge. How do you define what a speechwriter does? I had a good think about it and I sent Brian my definition. Being a speechwriter is a series of paradoxes one must be an experienced and confident professional, but one who is prepared to stay out of the limelight. One must be an adept networker, but prepared to spend days on end working alone. One must read reams of information, but be able to craft it into three punchy bullet points. And above all, while being an adept communicator, one must be the best listener around. So what I'd like to do today is to take each of those points and share my, some of my experiences on each of them. So firstly, one must be an experienced professional, but one who is prepared to stay out of the limelight. So how, how important is it to be an experienced professional? I think it goes without saying that to be able to advise leaders on the words they say in public, we need credibility. And we also need to be able to defend our own advice. When I worked for Barroso, I would often have very senior people come up to me and complain why couldn't you make Barroso sound like Obama? And if you can't do that, does that not mean that you're really bad at your job? But actually, the answer was simple. Barroso didn't sound like Obama because he wasn't Obama. If Barroso was giving a speech to MEPs on a particular piece of legislation, it's not the same as Obama giving a commencement address to university students that's going to be broadcast on YouTube. Barroso may not have sounded like Obama, but he was a formidable politician. He knew his audiences and he knew his purpose. He knew what every speech had to achieve. And yet, for the second part of the paradox, we must be prepared to stay out of the limelight. I remember very well the first advice I received from my boss when I became a speechwriter. He said, don't be proud. 
be prepared to see your words get killed. I think many of us have learned this the hard way. I know I have. One particularly painful example was preparing a speech for Barroso to be delivered to the European Parliament in Strasbourg. In the week before the speech, Barroso was very busy and his advisers and I just couldn't get a moment in his diary. But his deputy head of cabinet, Fernando, was a very astute political animal and he was really sure that he knew what Barroso would want to say in his speech. So Fernando and I spent a couple of days working on it and by the time we eventually got our meeting with Barroso at 8.30pm, the night before the speech was due to be delivered, we were pretty sure that we, we knew what he would want to say, we'd get the thumbs up and we'd be back in our hotel drinking a nice glass of wine pretty soon. But alas, it wasn't to be. When we had our meeting, Barroso spent two minutes studying the speech and then he looked at us over his glasses and he said, bah, c'est pas ça que je veux. It's not, that's not what I want at all. <laughs> so to our dismay, we were to rip up two days of work and start all over again at nine o'clock at night. Not surprisingly, version two of the speech was not an object of beauty, but it's just as well because that still what he, wasn't what he wanted either. So the final version that was approved at 6am the following morning after a sleepless night was a combination of the two. Which reminds me of the second best piece of professional advice I ever had, which was, whatever happens, don't take it personally. So moving on to my second <coughs> paradox. One must be an adept networker and be prepared to spend days on end working alone. For those of us who are in-house speechwriters, we of course depend very much on our networks within our organisations. We need other colleagues and other departments to provide us with the information, with the messaging that we need to build the speech. So building relationships within our organisation is key. But what those relationships look like can vary widely from one context to another as I discovered when I moved from Brussels to Qatar. In the European Commission, I was, used, <coughs> I was used to the concept that if you sent an email or you called up a colleague to request documents that you needed to prepare your speech, you would expect to receive a reply very quickly with a response, with the documents, with whatever you needed. In other words, colleagues saw it as part of their duty to respond to your request, and that was, that was the culture. But when I moved to Doha, I realised pretty quickly that my usual practice was going to get me nowhere. I'd made a couple of attempts at sending an email to a colleague asking for a, a document that I needed for my work. But I was getting the distinct impression that I may as well be sending my email to the man on the moon because I wasn't getting any reply. So after I found her office, which wasn't so easy, um, I politely introduced myself and I asked if she had received my emails um, about the document that I needed. At this point, I was expecting her to say, oh, sorry, sorry, yes, of course, I've got your email, yes, I'll send you the documents. But when I looked at her face, I understood very quickly that it wasn't her that should be apologising, it was me. This was not the way you dealt with colleagues in Qatar. From then on, any time I needed a document, I knew that firing off an email request was a surefire way of shooting myself in the foot. Instead, I had to lurk outside my colleague's office, wait for a suitable time to approach them. Then I had to ask if I could sit with them. And if the response was positive, we would sit down, we would order sugary tea, we would exchange pleasantries on the weather, which was always hot, on our children, <laughs> on the latest iPhone model, on the merits of their new Gucci bag or their new designer shoes 
until such time as these discussions were deemed to be over. And then I could feel that I had ingratiated myself sufficiently, explain what I was working on, and then ask for the document. So the point is that when I was in Brussels, the concept of sitting with someone to request information would have seemed absolutely absurd and, and ridiculous. But if I hadn't adapted to these cultural differences, I wouldn't have lasted very long in the Middle East. And yet, for the other part of the paradox, speech writing can be the loneliest job in the world. I remember one very grim long weekend in November in, in Brussels when I spent most of my family holiday um, working because Barroso needed three speeches by the time we got back from our holiday. I worked all the way to our hotel in the car and each morning of our holiday I woke up at 3am so I could get three or four hours work done while the children were still asleep. And that wasn't unique. The workload when I was working for Barroso was so high that I would spend days and days working alone in my office just to get through it. For the third paradox, one must read reams and reams of information but be able to craft it into three punchy bullet points. As speechwriters, we all know the importance of reading far and wide. Part of being credible is being well-informed, and part of being a good writer is being an avid reader. Personally, as a mother of three, I do find it hard to read as much as I would like, but I've become a big fan of podcasts, so that when I get a few minutes of peace, which is not very often, I can listen to those. And yet, every speech has a job to do. This is my favourite quote from Peggy Noonan's book on speech writing. It's the most important slide I use when I give training, and it's the first thing I always think about when I'm delivering a speech. And keeping this short mantra in mind is my favourite thing mm -hmm. about writing speeches. There's nothing better than cutting through all the reams of information and constructing a simple and compelling argument. And I think it's what distinguishes speechwriting from many other forms of communication. And it's what defines our profession. Because everyone thinks it must be really easy to write speeches, but often when they try, they discover how hard it is. One experience I cherished at Cambridge was when our CEO was asked to speak at a global conference of education ministers I was invited to the initial brainstorming about the speech, but then I was told by the Director of Public Affairs in no uncertain terms that my services were no longer needed because he was going to write the speech. Fine, as I said, don't take it personally. It all went quiet for a few weeks until actually just 10 days before the speech. Then I was summoned again and I was given 14 pages of text statistics, stories, promotion material, stuff about events, and it didn't seem to be in any particular order or ten tell any particular story. So the head of public affairs said, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, I think there's some really interesting elements in there, but, you know, uh, I think, you know, perhaps it could do with a couple of things like maybe an overarching message and three supporting points with a few examples and a conclusion, perhaps a call to action even. At that point, I was handed the papers and asked if I could go and sort it out. So needless to say, I've written everything for the CEO since then. And for the last paradox, above all, while being a communicator, one must be the best listener around. In my experience, 
Top leaders have enough aides around them who like to talk a lot. But what they often appreciate in a speechwriter is someone who listens. Listens not only to the debates and the conversations, but also to how the speaker speaks. As one speechwriter says, be a hoover. Does your speaker use long or short sentences? Do they speak with rhetorical questions? Do they use facts and figures? What kinds of facts and figures? Do they like to use long words when they speak or short words? Who do they admire and who do they read? It all helps capture their voice. And then there's also the question of which words and phrases to avoid for your particular speaker. This can be particularly relevant if your speaker is speaking in a different language, if they're a non-native speaker. For instance, in the Arabic language, there's not much distinction between the sounds of the consonants P and B. So when an Arabic first language speaker pronounces those consonants, they sound pretty much the same. So when I was writing for the First Lady of Qatar, and she wanted to make a reference to the Qatar 22 World Cup, I was very careful not to make any reference to football pictures. And just to finish, I've been thinking about what I would add to my definition of what a speechwriter does if Brian asked again today. And reflecting on the wider evolution of communications disciplines, it seems to me that there's an increasing demand to be tech-savvy in a way that we didn't, we didn't have to be before. Job adverts for speechwriters are including the need to have very advanced social media skills. For instance, I noticed that the Belgian chemicals company Solvay was recently looking for a speechwriter. The tasks included, of course, drafting speeches and blogs, but also what I found interesting was that they asked for the person to be able to drive the CEO's LinkedIn, Twitter platforms, and online voice. But the skills also included prior experience with communication measurement and analytics, being creative with social, solid social media skills. So it may increasingly be perceived that these <coughs> skills go hand in hand, but it does seem to me that being able to drive analytics and, and uh, be very social media um, experienced is quite a different skill set from being uh, a good speechwriter. So I'd be very happy to take your views on that and take any questions you have. Thank you.